Welcome to the Matterhorn Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here, we have conversations about cultural studies, the arts, and writing. If you want to sign up to my Substack newsletter for free, just click on the link in this homepage. Today, I'm reading a preview of Tuesday's article on Maine, my imaginary elsewhere. It's part of our summer series at the Matterhorn. You you can subscribe to my newsletter for free on Substack to access all the links and media. Summer travel, Maine. Maine lives in my mind like a vivid, swirling, parallel world I'm always inhabiting from elsewhere. Don't we, as writers, all have those? Imaginary intersections of places and times creating our current realities or those of our fictions. Maine is my elsewhere. I guess it's not my only one. Other former homes have also taken on this identity in my mind. The nature of a place and its culture move between each other to create its identity. As I inhabit them both, I, too, become a part of them. It's easier to take pieces of culture with me than nature. Photographs and memories, instead, remind me of this natural beauty. But so do words those I've written and those of authors who take nature into their minds and allow it to flow out as language. I guess then it has already become cultural as well. I want to consider these questions in thinking about Maine today, as well as considering any place. What does place have to do with culture? Or what does nature have to do with creating a sense of place? Or further still, how does nature shape society? Inhabiting the natural landscape. My encounters with Maine were first purely connected to nature, hiking and beach trips with my family, later camping by lakes and skiing in the mountains. I later spent four years living in Brunswick during university, and a couple of those summers living out in the boonies near Augusta at sleepover summer camps where I coached gymnastics. College was also filled with many dives into Maine's nature, thanks especially to my cross-country coach, who drove us to various woods, beaches, and eek, steep hills to make the most of our experience there. Thanks, Coach Levensky. A few times we got lost on our way to apple orchards or waterfalls or farms, but someone in the group of runners always had a team-issued walkie-talkie that would eventually come into range of the vans. Maine has a diverse landscape that attracts many nature tourists, all the way back to Henry David Thoreau, who wrote The Maine Woods after several immersive trips to the state that included much interaction with the native Abnaki Indians. Here is a beautiful quote from Thoreau's book that investigates the way he has moved completely into nature. I could trace the outlines of large birches that had fallen long ago, collapsed and rotted and turned to soil by faint yellowish-green lines of feather-like moss. 18 inches wide and 20 or 30 feet long, crossed by other similar lines. I heard a night warbler, wood thrush, kingfisher, tweezer bird, or party-colored warbler, and a nighthawk. I also heard and saw red squirrels, and heard a bullfrog. The Indian said that he heard a snake. Wild as it was, it was hard for me to get rid of the associations of the settlements. Any steady and monotonous sound, to which I did not distinctly attend, passed for a sound of human industry. The waterfalls which I heard were not without their dams and mills to my imagination, and several times I found that I had been regarding the steady rushing sound of the wind from over the woods beyond the rivers as that of train or cars. The cars at Quebec 
Our minds everywhere, anywhere, when left to themselves, are always thus busily drawing conclusions from false premises. Although Thoreau had already famously escaped to Walden ten years earlier, this was a new level. Walden Pond, even at the time, was just a walk away from Concord Center. It's not really the same thing. Maine still has virgin forest and places that are only marked by a town number rather than number rather than name for lack of habitants, as well as a bunch of others with populations less than 100. I'll be talking more about Thoreau in yoga and writing next month. Did you know that he was also into yoga? I had some of these experiences Thoreau describes during those cross-country runs in college. Notably, on one run, a line of us ran just a couple meters away from a hidden moose. It might be surprising that a moose can hide, but they're good at it. Seeing a moose on a run was a lot different from seeing it on the side of the road whilst driving. They are massive. But beyond the forests and mountains, I'll leave skiing out of it today, or I would get carried away. There is the great coastline. In fact, there is 3,500 miles of coastline in Maine, 5,633 kilometers. People often say it's as long as the equator, but it would have about 20,000 miles more to go. There are some great sandy beaches like Popham, where we also used to run each year and take Chariots of Fire style photos for the team website. Popham was also the film location of Message in a Bottle, one of those Kevin Costner romances I just can't get myself to see, perhaps because I'm still embarrassed that for a year or so of middle school, I went around saying The Bodyguard was my favorite movie. There are also many beautiful rocky areas along the coast, often with towns created due to fishing communities. These are on islands and bays, often with small wooden homes and many colorful buoys hanging off the buildings. Lobster culture. Now, if we move to a topographical approach, that is nature plus artificial, physical, free features and surfaces, and likewise consider landscapes created by humans, we start to see how nature has impacted culture. In Maine, we must start with the lobster. It's everywhere. Okay, maybe the moose is almost as ubiquitous, not just roaming freely, but also in t-shirts, mugs, bumper stickers, and menus. Yes, you can eat a moose. It's really, really good. I've had my vegetarian moments, two years even at one point, but I do try to eat as ethically minded as possible. The Maine moose population is too large, so permits are given each year via lottery. In college, we had a Jan term, which for me meant winter track training. Many local families would host us for meals. I was lucky one year to go to Winnie's house, the lady who manned our field house front desk, and eat some of the moose she had hunted that year. It really was delicious. I hope this moose had a good life in the wild. Okay, but what about the lobsters? Everyone knows about Maine lobster, right? They market it well, and it's had a long history in the state well before the British arrived. Here's a quote about that. Long ago, Native Americans used lobsters as bait and as fertilizer for their crops. Lobsters were so plentiful along the shores of Maine during colonial times that they were considered poverty food and were served to prisoners and indentured servants. Servants eventually rebelled and listed in their contracts that they were not to be forced to eat lobster more than three times a week. Colonists began trapping lobster in the mid-1800s, but it was the Rockefeller family at their summer home on Mount Desert Island and its view as a, quote, delicacy during World War II that made lobster into a treat. 
MDI is home of Acadia National Park, where I went to camp with friends in high school, looking at the sunrise from Cadillac Mountain, supposedly first each morning in the U.S. Then again, I went to camp and mountain bike at the start of my university studies as a sort of first-year bonding trip. U.S. colleges do this kind of thing. It's a beautiful place, but also a visceral manifestation of the divide of rich-poor in this state. It has been famously the home of the Rockefellers, as well as many other rich vacationers, often from my home state. These are labeled as massholes when touristing, even though the two were joined as one state until 1820. There is also political divide in this state, echoed in it being one of only two states that can split its electoral vote for U.S. president. MDI famously offers lobster ice cream at Ben and Bill's in Bar Harbor. The linked origin story is in the article. Or maybe you've heard of the lobster roll at McDonald's. While lobster may be a delicacy and less plentiful and more expensive than ever thanks to overfishing and climate change, back in the years 1998 to 2002, my college used to serve the entire student population and staff lobster at the start of the year and then again during graduation week along with their parents. It's always smart to leave a good taste in one's mouth when it comes to alumni giving. But also, it wasn't so difficult or expensive for them to do it. Lobster on a good year was still plentiful. Additionally, when parents were in town with their credit cards, we would drive 20 minutes over the bridges to iconic Cook's Lobster House, which felt like a different world. The tiny island villages surrounded by water were all about the lobster. The restaurant began in 1955 and has since been featured on a national visa commercial, solidifying its stand as a part of Maine culture. The Maine Lobster Festival in Rockland is an international annual event. It became the subject of David Foster Wallace's article for Gourmet Magazine in 2004. Consider the Lobster is also housed in a collection of essays under the same name. Here, DFW tackles the complexities of animal cruelty with many a great footnote. He doesn't have a solution. He's both horrified by boiling these animals alive and eating them in such quantity, and acknowledges the human impulse to simply do it and not think about it too much. Of course, much of the essay is pure metaphor, although it is written for a, good, for a food magazine. It's DFW, so. Trying to understand whether or not lobsters feel pain when they are boiled alive, he goes into some deep places. Since pain is a totally subjective mental experience, we do not have direct access to anyone or anything's pain but our own, and even just the principles by which we can infer that other human beings experience pain and have a legitimate interest in not feeling pain involve hardcore philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, value theory, ethics. Even if you cover the kettle and turn away, you can usually hear the rattling and clanking as the lobster tries to push it off or the creature's claws scraping the sides of the kettle as it thrashes around. The lobster, in other words, behaves very much as you or I would if plunged into boiling water, with the obvious exception of screaming. A footnote explains the legend of a lobster scream is indeed vented steam escaping. So do you eat lobster or not? And should I eat it when I go next go home and my parents want to bring some from the fish market? In addition to this debate, lobstering has made this state what it is. There are a few other articles linked on my Substack page. Literary histories. You might be aware that Stephen King makes his home in Maine, his native state. He also uses the setting for many of his spooky tales. 
Lizzie Bright and the Buckminster Boy by Gary D. Schmidt is a Maine-based YA novel, sometimes taught in secondary schools, about a whale, friendship, religion, and racism. It explores some of these small coastal towns and the homogenous nature of them, as well as their inherent connection to the sea. Another famous book that was written in Maine, in fact at Bowdoin College, my alma mater, is Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, an anti-slavery novel that some say sparked the Civil War some 10 years later, mostly due to the backlash against it by slave owners. Bowdoin has also been home to other celebrated American authors, most notably Nathaniel Hawthorne of The Scarlet Letter and poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And other Maine natives from the past include Edna St. Vincent Millay and E.B. White. There's a lot more in terms of the arts that come from Maine, especially in its colleges and in Portland, for example, in the Portland Museum of Art. However, there's also so much artistry in the small watercolor paintings, handmade pottery, and books of poetry that one can find for sale at such places as the Lobster Festival. I have yet to write a fiction set in Maine, but I think that if I do, it must play with this topography and interaction between culture and place. I can imagine spending a summer along the coast doing this, undoubtedly falling into cliche, unless I can conjure the spirit of Thoreau and just look really closely at what's right in front of me. If you want to access all of the media for these posts, including videos, hyperlinked references, and further reading, images, and the occasional Spotify playlist, you can subscribe for free to the Matterhorn, Intersections of Literature and Art on Substack. Thanks for joining us today.